Hi, I'm Evan Duncan, the senior pastor of the Baptist Church of Westchester in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad you found our podcast channel. On it, we share our weekly messages, and from time to time, you'll see some other things as well. If you want to learn more about our church or see how you can contact us, visit bcwc.org. For those who don't know me, my name is Evan. I'm the senior pastor here, and welcome. It's so good that we can gather together and worship this morning. Thank you to all who have led us so beautifully so far this morning. I have this friend who, as a small child, uh, he didn't speak in his early childhood development. So the family was engaging in speech therapy, trying to determine um, what was happening, why he was not speaking. Eventually, in an appointment with a speech therapist, the therapist asked this child a question about his toy dinosaur that he had brought with him. Now remember, this child has never spoken at all. She asked him if the brontosaurus, this toy that he brought, was his favorite kind of dinosaur. The child looked at her with annoyed eyes and said with perfect clarity, well, actually, it's a diplodocus. I love that story because it encapsulates my friend's personality. He is one to quickly say, well, actually, I'm sure you know people like that or are that person yourself. He is usually right, and he will let you know. But perhaps you've noticed when you've been right that being right isn't always what it's cracked up to be, right? Think about your relationships, interactions that you've had. Think about relationship with partners, sometimes the most important thing is not about who is right. As Pastor Zach just illustrated so beautifully, we can spend all this time arguing about the rules of the game and then we never play the game. You can be right and still totally wrong, right? One of my dearest friends Uh, talks often about God and how God cares much more that we are right with others. He cares much more that we are right with others than that we might be right about our religious performance. We've been talking about what it means to love God and love our neighbors and doing so by looking at the Gospel of Luke looking at these stories in Luke that emerge that help guide us in how we love God, how we love our neighbors. And the activity that we're participating in together is this loving God and neighbor grid. It's in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen. And the way that you participate is you identify your eight closest neighbors and you write their names down. Now, this may be the actual physical neighbors and houses around you. It may be apartments around you, above, below. It may be people you work around, sit around in class, people in the different dorms around you, the cubicles around where you work. It doesn't matter, but identify eight. Write their names. You may not know their names. Ask their names. And then we use this as a tool to just pray for our neighbors. It's hard to love our neighbors if we don't know them. And we know that when we're commanded to love neighbor, it's much more than our physical neighbors. But we should love them too. And that's a good place 
to start. And so I'd encourage you to see how you're doing with the grid, if you can fill out more squares than you could when we first started. And if you have a story about an interaction, a relationship that has come from this, I've already heard a few, I would love to hear them. So just share those with me. Um, That's really fun to see what God might do when we get to know some people. But we're using this tool to help us think about how we might be right with God and our neighbors. In today's text, as we dive into the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11, we're going to see how sometimes we can be so focused on right performance of our religion that we totally miss out on loving God and loving our neighbors at all. So if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 11, it will be on the screen as well. Luke chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee, a religious leader of the day, invited him to dine with him. So he went in, and he took his place at the table. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Again, we find ourselves at a banquet. We were at a feast just last week as well at the Pharisee's home. Jesus has just been teaching about how we love God and that our connection to God is like a light within us that then radiates out into the world. And it is in this moment, while still speaking, a religious leader invites Jesus to a meal. And if you'll remember from last week, these meals often happened at these U-shaped kind of tables, and there were all these kinds of expectations on how you might act. We saw last week a religious leader not showing Jesus any love or appreciation by refusing to show Jesus hospitality. This week, the Pharisees noticed that Jesus has not washed up first. When we read it today, we may think this is just some kind of like, hey, you should wash your hands before the meal, and why didn't you? But it's bigger than that. No, this is not just washing your hands before you eat, which you should do, by the way. Maybe that's the nugget you need to take from the sermon today. You should wash your hands. It's just a good lesson for all of us. But what the Pharisees are shocked by is that Jesus doesn't do this other kind of washing. The word for wash here is the word baptizo. It's where we get baptized. And the word baptizo, it means to submerge, immerse. You could use the word when you would describe a ship that had sunk into the waters. The Pharisees are talking about some kind of ritual washing. It's something the Pharisees took very seriously. In their faith, they would make sure they did a ritual washing before entering into the temple. And and they chose also to do it before eating meals to ensure that they were clean together. And so that Jesus did not participate in the way that they liked to observe their faith, they're shocked. They're thinking, Jesus, you're a teacher. You should, you know, do all the things. Check all the boxes. Perhaps you can imagine a group of pastors gathering gathering to eat a meal at a restaurant together, each taking turns to pray with a loud, elaborate grace, outdoing one another, just to show off how good they are at praying. Can you imagine it? 
This is sort of the sense of what is happening here, that religious leaders are saying, Jesus isn't even doing the things to prove how religious and in tune with the way we practice our faith. He, he didn't even wash. And Jesus responds in a way that maybe feels a little bit surprising to us. This is 11, starting in verse 39. The Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? So give as alms those things that are within, and then everything will be clean for you. Jesus wastes no time to call out these religious leaders and says, yes, you do a good job of cleaning up the outside of the cup. And then he abandons the metaphor altogether. And by the way, inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. I love that Luke uses the title Lord here in Luke 11. It is intentional. It doesn't matter who invited Jesus to the meal, who would sit at the center place of prominence at the table. It didn't matter who did the pre-dinner religious bath. When Jesus shows up, He is Lord. Perhaps that's something we need to learn from this story about loving God and neighbor. If we want to invite Jesus into our lives, into our relationship, into our world, we should be aware that being right with God involves letting Jesus be Lord because Jesus is going to be Lord. That's a whole other sermon. This authoritative Jesus says, you fools, you're always so worried about the external, but inward, you're a greedy, wicked mess. It's surprising for Jesus to be this direct as we read it, but in ancient literature during this time, the dinner table was often a scene of drama and a place for contests of honor. This shows up again and again in literature from this time. Luke's audience would have recognized this battle between opposing forces. In one work by a writer named Petronius from around the same time as Luke, there was this excellent argument that we have preserved that we can read around the dinner table. And it's typical of this kind of back and forth. In fact, one character calls another character a curly-headed onion, which I think is a phenomenal insult and we should bring back to the repertoire. I, I just found that and thought it was great. So Jesus doesn't shy away from calling out these religious leaders because that's what was common in this type of literature and he is so concerned with their behavior. Jesus always gets really upset. <laughs> When those religious folks think highly of themselves while trampling on the less fortunate. While they think they've arrived, yet inside, he knows about their greed and their wickedness. He says, you're hypocrites. Worried so much about the outside. About the things to check off and missing loving God and neighbor. says your insides are full of greed, so empty your pockets and your hearts. Give away to others and let generosity be the antidote for your greed. I like how Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. 
He says, turn both your pockets and your hearts inside out and give generously to the poor. Then your lives will be clean, not just your dishes and your hands. See, these religious leaders are very concerned about how they look to everybody else. But in all of that, they're harming others. And they're ignoring the greed that festers within It's easier to worry about what we look like on the outside, right? (laughs) It's harder to look inward, to invite Jesus inward to convict us, to challenge us, to illuminate like that light all that is within. Being right with others includes living with generosity, And Jesus is about to get more specific with the problems He sees among these teachers. But before we dive into those specific woes that we find here, I think it's important to to ask why this is included in Luke's Gospel. You see, when Luke is writing, he's writing to Christian believers scattered all over. They're not really concerned about the Pharisees in Jerusalem. Why, Why include these woes to this particular audience. I think Luke wants us to see how the pitfalls that these Pharisees fall into are pitfalls that we can fall into as well. Luke intends for us to look inward to see how we practice our faith, how we love God and neighbor. As one scholar says, without continual self-evaluation and correction, All structures of religion decay into idolatry. I believe if we don't check the way we practice our faith and relate to each other against the way and the character of Jesus, against these two great commands, love God and neighbor, we run the risk of letting our faith become twisted into something unlike Christ. So with that in mind, let us read some woes. Jesus will say to them in 11, starting in verse 42, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds, but neglect justice and the love of God. It's those things you ought to practice without neglecting the others. What? Tithing or giving a tenth of all that you have was not required by Hebrew law on herbs Who knew? I didn't. Turns out they've been going over and above to make sure they gave away a tenth even of these extra things. And yet, Jesus says, you have neglected justice. Love of God. Who cares about the herbs? (laughs) Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees! For you love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. He says you value your privilege and your power and your status as religious leaders and experts and you feel superior to others. Woe to you. And in his final woe to this group in verse 44, he says, woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves on which people unknowingly walk. That's a little bizarre to us as we read it today, but in the Jewish faith, 
Dead bodies were considered to be unclean and would make you unclean if you were to come into contact with them. So graves would be clearly marked so people could avoid them. They would know if they had been near them so they could do their ceremonial washing before going to worship. And Jesus says the Pharisee, with their hidden greed and corruption, make them like hidden graves, harming unsuspecting others who come into contact with them. What a word for us today. We may not even know the harm that can be done by people who claim the name of Christ and yet. Now the experts in the law, as some translations say, others say lawyers, speak up. No offense to any lawyers in the room. I don't know if there are any, but some uh, of these experts in the law speak up. And again, this is a different thing. The, Luke is writing here about what was kind of the second level under the Pharisees. These are the well-actually kind of people, okay? And here's what happens in verse 45. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And he said, Well, also to you, experts in the law. For you load people with burdens hard to bear. And yet you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. So Jesus says, look, you who add to the burdens of others, the demands who are always filling out the list for others to check and then offer no help at all. You create barriers and burdens and watch people struggle. Likely, Luke is thinking about some financial burdens at this time, loans with interest that these religious experts liked to use, ways of extracting money from people with their own greed. But regardless, it is this sense of giving a burden to someone, expecting them to live up to something, but not willing to walk with them. He has more woes. This is verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of prophets whom your ancestor killed. And you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that this generation may be charged with the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be charged against this generation. This is a particularly difficult passage, as you may have noticed as you read along. But the sense here is that these lawgivers are celebrating, bringing attention to the, the prophets of old, the Micahs, the Amoses, all while continuing to do the things, ignoring justice, ignoring the love of God. They were doing the things that the prophets called out. Luke will then tie this to the prophets of this time, the apostles, the church that is coming, saying they will continue, the apostles, the church will continue to talk about loving God and neighbor of justice and mercy. And they will be attacked by the experts of the law for it. 
And this bizarre to us passage about blood being on this generation, I think is most likely Jesus foreshadowing His own death. His own death at the hands of the world as a summation of all the murder that has gone before it. That's a pretty serious woe. We've got one more. 52. Woe to you experts in the law, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself, and you hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the scribes and the Pharisees became hostile to him and began to interrogate him about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Finally, he reveals that last woe. He says, look, you experts in the law, you know the scriptures, you've studied them, and yet, here you reject God's commands, God's love, God's desire that we might be right with each other. And then you stand in the ways of others, preventing them from seeing the beauty of God. I went to a religiously affiliated college, and each Easter, they hosted this huge Easter pageant. It was wild. Thousands of people would come from the community as hundreds of students would dress up and act out the last days of Christ. And one year, the administration was sharing with the leadership team of students about how the seating works, and they shared with them that there are these two rows of seats that are on the grass closest to the play. And they reserve those two rows of seats for the biggest donors to the school. If you give money to the school, you get to sit at front at the Easter pageant. And a friend of mine, a student at the time, raised his hand, and they called on him and he stood up there in front of the administration and he pulled out his Bible, I think on his phone, and went to James 2, 3 and simply read, if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here in a good place, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit by my footstool, he didn't have to keep reading. (laughs) The administration stopped saving the best seats for the donors, that really happened. And I love that story because when we think about institutions and how we do things, we want the best. When we think about the financial security of a university, it would make sense to give the donors the best seats. It might make sense in our minds to show preference the wealthy and those that are good at checking off the boxes. But Jesus understood that loving God and loving neighbor is not about what's right for our own success or the success of anything we're a part of, but it's about right relationship with God and neighbor. A right relationship that refuses to buy into self-service and greed, that rejects power-pulling, In a few verses, Jesus was able to cut right into the center of the religious institutions around him 
and revealed the rot that was there inside. It was rot that started off with good intentions. A good list of good things to do. But the obsession with right religious performance obscured their ability to have right relationship with God and each other. It's the same kind of rot that can infect any church or faith community that can become absorbed in in keeping its own existence. It's the kind of rot that can seep into us when we miss out on loving God and neighbor. It is rot that we hide in ourselves and we cover up with outward displays of religion. Will we let Jesus challenge us as light within us illuminating all? Langston Hughes wrote this poem called Tired, I want to share with you. So I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you? For the world to become good and beautiful and kind, let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. What happens when we look inward and invite the light of Christ inside, when we cut open to see what's at the core of our world, our community, our church, our very selves, what will we find? I'm convinced that we are invited to welcome Christ to be the center and that if we let Christ be the center, invite Him to be Lord, He will be Lord. And a light will shine from the inside out. A light that helps us care more about being right with God and our neighbors than right religious performance. It's what we heard in Luke 10, 27. The key to this whole series, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. What kind of community would we be if these commands were what characterized us, if that was our center, the very character of Christ by the power of the Spirit became more and more our character. You know, when I was working through this passage and reflecting on it, I realized how quick I was to identify myself with Jesus calling out the hypocrites. Just give you a hint when you study the Bible. If you are placing yourself in Jesus' shoes in the story, you might be doing it wrong. We want to join Jesus in this righteous indignation, and there are times when, when we do, we should. But we also must slow down enough to see how these woes might invite us to look inward, to see how much we have fallen into the same pitfalls of the Pharisees. And the lawyers, how we can value outward appearances and right performance over right relationship. How we might have burdened others, pushed others aside, jumped to, well, actually, <laughs> tried to prove our holiness. I think the Pharisees have such a hard time of seeing the need to love God and neighbor that Jesus is teaching because it's hard for them to look inward, to repent from their own selfishness and rebellion, to truly invite Jesus to be Lord. Or 
we ready to accept that invitation to invite Jesus and the light of Christ into our lives? To surrender to His Lordship, to follow Him with our lives, to ask for His transformation. And perhaps we will see through repentance and the power of the Spirit that we might help recreate a world and a life that is good and beautiful and kind. As we close this morning, I want to close with a passage from a theologian reflecting on these verses. R. Alan Culpepper writes, What would this passage look like if it were changed from woes to beatitudes? What if it was a blessing on righteous Pharisees? It would read, Blessed are you Pharisees. For you practice justice and the love of God while you pay a tithe on even your smallest sources of income. Blessed are you Pharisees, for you love to give others the same seats of honor and greet the lonely and overlooked persons in the marketplace. Blessed are you, for you are like unmarked springs. You bless others without realizing it. Similarly, as a blessing on the devout lawgivers, it might read, Blessed are you, lawyers, for you ease the burden on others and help them carry their loads. Blessed are you, for you honor the prophets and strive to heed their warnings. There is hope for this generation. Blessed are you, lawyers, for you have found the key to knowledge and you have entered yourselves. And you have helped others find the way also. If Jesus is at the center, these could be the words we hear from our Lord. May it be so. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You. We thank You for Your Lordship even if sometimes it means you start declaring woes, may you help us to be a people that look inward and invite you by the power of your Spirit to reveal to us the places where we have fallen into greed or self-preservation or unhealthy fear. May You illuminate those places within us. May You invite us to repentance and may You invite us to Your new life. Jesus, may we be a people who take Christ-centered living seriously. May You use us to be a blessing to our world that You may show us, invite us, gather us together in communities so that we may go out and be right with each other, right with our neighbor, and because of Your sacrifice and Your love, know that we are right with You. Thank You, God, for making us right. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org.
And as you go through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.